You're listening to The Vent Podcast, where we bring you interviews and stories from around the world of wine and spirits. From winemakers and critics to sommeliers and master distillers, we'll explore the people and businesses who are instrumental in shaping the future of today's food and drinks culture. Enjoy the show. Everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. I'm here with Billy Galanko, who's wearing all Navy today, uh, ready to get into uh, this exclusive interview. Yep, I'm here with Brady, who's colorblind because I'm wearing a black shirt, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm back in with a great interview following our, our great Thanksgiving. I hope I hope your weekend with your minimal plans was great as well. Yeah, it was. Uh, let's see what we do. Yeah, I had dinner with the family. Got to to go deer hunting. That was good with my father and best best buddy. Um, got some meat for the fridge, and um, had. Some, I always say it wrong, but Carmenier, Carmenier, Carmen, how do you say it? Yeah, Carmenier. Carmenier, yeah. Yeah. And that was good too. It was like 2011, Carmenier and Merlot, I think, from California. Yeah. Nice, nice. We had our Thanksgiving and then I actually did a higher end Rhone tasting over the weekend after we got back from Thanksgiving. So over Thanksgiving, we actually had, I think the most interesting wine was actually at my cousin's house, I guess my uncle's house with my cousin. They had a cake bread cellars wine. I can't remember the exact name. It was like one of their fanciful names, but it was Syrah and Pinot Noir from the north coast of Sonoma. Oh, wow. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it was really cool. I think that the earthiness from the Syrah really came through and complimented the Pinot. It was their Rubaiyat bottling from 2019. And that was huh. like, it was surprisingly, yeah, earthy, complex, nice concentration. I was, I was surprised, um, but it was, it was really nice. Yeah, that was basically the highlight. We also had a single vineyard bottling from Domaine Druhan from Aeola Amity, actually, one of their vineyards. So that was that was probably my second favorite when I slightly, really high acid. It was so lean. I forget how lean Aeola Amity wines can be. So that was cool. Yeah, and then when I got back from Pennsylvania, I went to a, a tasting, Rhone tasting, and I got to try a couple of things I've always wanted to, or at least wines from places I've always wanted to. So I had my, my first two Hermitage wines. I had a in my first Chave Hermitage. So it was a, it was a young, a baby one, a domain Jean-Louis Chave, obviously. Hermitage Blanc from 2020, which was pretty cool. I went and listened to the Sommelier's Atlas, Atlas of Wine, or what is it? Whatever Raj Parr's book is on. Atlas of um, Taste. Atlas of Taste. I listened to that on the way to the tasting and back. And they basically like, Chave himself doesn't drink the Blancs until they're at least 15 years old. When they're, when they're young, they're like a, a fat baby just rolling around with different notes. And I was like, I was like, I get it. I get it now. I just had this fat baby. That was, that was cool. I was, I was really excited. I get, now I have to try an aged one. And and luckily I, I still don't understand why, but Shav, Shav's wines, even like after age and from Hermitage are still really affordable when you compare it to the top wines from other regions, um, both Blanc and, and the Rouge. A couple other ones I had, they had a Cornas there. I had my first Charpoutier Hermitage as well. That was also young. It was 2020 Le Pavillon bottling, but that was, that was really cool. Nice, lot of depth and complexity. That one was a, a fairly expressive, even for a young guy, a 2020. And then there was a 2019 Domain View Telegraph, the La Croix bottling, and then a 2006 Chateau Beaucastel Chateauneuf from the 2001 Claude de Pop, Chateauneuf de Pop which both of those are really, really cool to see an aged Chateauneuf de Pop. I hadn't really experienced many of those before, and we sell a lot of both of those producers on the marketplace. So it's nice for me to be able to start tasting more of these things that everybody's buying on a regular basis. So that was cool. Those were the kind of the highlights of my my tasting weekend. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, trying to set up a, a whiskey tasting night with my buddy for the new year to try and drink through some of these open bottles that we both have. So. More, more on that. Maybe we'll have you over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you if you want to wait till like next June, I'll be in DC for a wedding. Yeah. Then I can Perfect. join. <laughs> awesome. Well, I guess for the the what we're drinking this weekend, I'm just gonna leave it with Chateauneuf de Pop. Even though I probably will do this in a couple weeks again, it's what my mom's father apparently traditionally drank with Christmas dinner. So it's a great holiday wine. So anybody just stocking up, I think the red fruits when it's young and it's 
nice and vibrant and juicy and then it can evolve well when it gets old. I think it's a perfect combo for whatever you're drinking this holiday season. So I think everybody should should go find some. Yeah, for sure. I went on a kind of kick of buying a bunch of Gigal wines over the, I guess, over the summer and might break in some, something something there. Yeah, you, you could cover the north and the southern room there with this. Mm-hmm. With his bottle, mm-hmm. actually, you probably cover everywhere. He, they bought yeah, I think so they wine. Basic, yeah, yeah, they basically have the whole area covered. <laughs> Do you want to intro, Joe? Yeah, yeah. So our guest today is is somebody I've been looking forward to chatting with for a long time. It's Joe Fatterini. I first saw him on the Wine Show, which was a, a British based wine TV show. That's one of the the bigger wine shows available. I'm, I'm pretty sure now I watch it on Amazon. Before it used to be available on in some other platforms, but in the show, basically, I started watching it because my passions are somewhere wine history, but also wine travel. In the show, basically, they have a couple characters, not characters, actors come on. In the first season, it's Matthew Reese and Matthew Good. James Purefoy is in the second season. And then uh, I forgot the actor in the third season. But basically, there are these guys who come on and Joe Fatterini is the, the hub of which the episodes go around. So he helps direct them in a little bit of their tasting. He sends them on some assignments to taste in whatever country that a season's based in. So it's Italy in the first season, France in the second season, Portugal in the third season. And then Joe goes around along with his partner, Amelia, who's the other wine expert, to taste in different countries and regions around the world. So he at some point he goes to China, South Africa, he goes to Germany, he goes to certain places in France. But while he's there, he tries to do something local to the culture. So in China, he's pairing wines. In Mosul, he attempts to help harvest grapes by walking up and down like the really steep vineyards which is hilarious because he's a smaller guy carrying a bunch of grapes at one point he he gets hammered into a barrel and he sits in a barrel to see what it would be like to be smuggled in a barrel for a while so anyway he does he does some cool stuff and i always love his little bits in the episode so after the wine show he's gone on to become a wine consultant a marketing guru and really advise companies around the world and i thought it would be really entertaining guest to have and he he did not disappoint it was it was a great interview we went on for almost an hour so i hope everybody that straps in because the conversation is it's it doesn't seem like an hour you'll be listening and it'll just be over pretty quickly <laughs> hopefully yeah yeah and make sure you click down in the description and see a video of joe bathing in red wine which we'll include down there that he claims helped him get the role in the show and he explains that yeah. later <laughs> in the episode as well but yeah without any further ado here is joe fatterini All right, we are here with a very special guest, Joe Fatterini. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joe. I'm not that special. I'm just quite sitting and talking about wine with fond people. <laughs> and I'm delighted to be here. I feel quite special. Thank you for having me along. Yeah, no, no worries. I was. I'm a big wine show fan. We, they would have the audience will have heard us talk about the wine show in the past and also in the intro here. So I'm fanboying out having you on the podcast in the first place. But can you talk a little bit about your life, how you got into wine? Give us a little background before we dive into what you're doing and how you actually got on and started the wine show. Completely. Because I am one of those traditional wine merchanty people in the UK who well, you end up joining the army, joining the wine trade because you don't join the army. I wasn't good enough to go and become an army officer and go to Santa's. So what do you do? Well, I wasn't holy enough for a priest or clever enough to be a lawyer. So you end up going and becoming a wine merchant because it's socially acceptable and you get to wear red trousers and your parents generally approve. But you don't need to be that bright to go and do it as long as you remember vintages. I was always quite into wine as a child. I was seven when my grandfather poured some, it was Latour 45, so the the armistice vintage of Latour, which now is worth tens of thousands of pounds and dollars. It's insanely expensive. So yeah, I joined the wine trade not long after university and as a failed soldier. And I was really, I am a wine merchant. I'm not a wine broadcaster. And you get people who go and they say, oh, I want to be a wine communicator, wine writer. Not that that's a bad thing. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I was just this dude who went around and I sold wine in Scotland for a long time. I actually sold not wine in Scotland. I used to sell hard liquor. That's what you call it in America. Hard spirits to really, really rough pubs, um, including one where I wasn't able to come in one day and I asked why not. And she said, we found a dead terrorist in the lavatories. 
And this guy had been murdered overnight. And they were quite famous as a, a kind of fundraising venue for the Ulster Defence Association. So the, the Protestant terrorists in Northern Ireland. So we used to, I mean, it was, it was quite hairy at times, actually. Some of it was, was rough. But I had lots of fun and then got into wine, wine merchanting. Years later, years later, I then was off the wine show. And by fluke, I had done some TV when I was young. Not really wine TV kind of food and things. So I had done stuff, but only ever in Scotland. So it was a bit of a, a surprise. Did you ever, have you ever heard about how I actually got the gig in the first place? It's, no, no, it's I would love to. Yeah, it. So <laughs> this is a long time ago now, but I was on a press trip. I was writing a newspaper column for the Herald, Scotland's biggest paper. I got this, somebody said, would you come to Argentina and try wine? So I think it was a big Argentine Wine Awards. It was the first ever Argentine Wine Awards. So anyway, we tried it. And at the end, they said, oh, thank you all very much for tasting all these young Malbecs. All our teeth were black. We were all slightly had enough <laughs> of Malbec. And we, well, at the end, they took us to a spa. And I had a bath of wine. And I quite enjoyed this. So I remember I put this little camera at the end of the bath. I'm completely naked. In this red bath of Bernarda. Anybody who's ever drunk Bernarda? Been asked to bathe in. So I'm having this bath. And of course, I'm quite squiffy because it's been, been a few days and we're just all drinking happily. And I just started talking to the camera at the end of the bath. Going, oh, this has been marvelous. I had the most wonderful time. I've been drinking wine. And look, I'm now actually having a bath in it. And I put it on YouTube. It was quite the early days of YouTube and totally forgot that this video was there for 10 years. Nobody watched it for 10 years. Ten years later, like the hundredth view was the producer of the wine show. Brilliant person, Melanie Jaffe. Absolutely genius. And she had been looking for somebody, not explicitly, but somebody who would be stupid enough to have a bath of wine and still talk sensibly about wine, even though they probably had a bit too much to drink. And so, yeah, she got in touch on Twitter. She sent me a DM and said, would you like to make this show? And I went, yes. I was a bit like, what was that joke about Chevy Chase's voicemail? And it says, hi, I'm Chevy Chase. Yes, I'll do it. And it was a little bit the same. Hi, Joe, we're making a TV show. Yes, I'll do it. And I leapt at the chance. Well, we'll link your wine bath video below. I see it has four, but below the episode, I see it has 4,000 views already, which I had a YouTube video with 4,000 views, but I think it was just me playing a video game when I was six. Um, <laughs> the... Um, you're, uh, you had, you, you said that you had your first experience. Well, maybe it wasn't your first experience, but the experience with the 1945, it seems like every guest we've talked to who's had an experience with a war era, world war era wine from France is now massive in the wine trade. One, why was it that you were drinking such an incredible storied wine at that time? I guess it maybe wasn't a thought of the way it is today, but how does that happen? How does one Start, what was the culture of your family such that you were able to have access to something like that when you were younger? The amazing thing was how different the wine trade, the wine world is hey, to back then. I'm quite old now. I'm in my 50s. I'm not that sort of ancient. But it's worth that time, certainly when I was very little, an a-normal, I mean, very big air quotes, a normal person could go and drink first growth cloud as a bit of a treat when they once a year or twice a year. My, my parents were wine drinkers, but they weren't great wine collectors. They would have wine in the house. And I remember as a child, though, it'd be Paul Masson's California Carafe, one of the all-time great mass brands. So they enjoyed wine in these new bits, but they never really went kind of gangbusters for it. My grandfather was more of a collector and my uncle, my dad's brother was a wine merchant for much of his career, actually. So he really was quite into wine and he had really, and he's my godfather. And so we used to talk about wine. In fact, my aunt's husband, who was an admiral, he also was a sort of wine collector and still is and has lovely range. There were people in the family who were kind of wine, wine folk. I think my grandfather had just bought some interesting vintages at a point in time when he didn't actually have to spend that money to go and buy really amazing vintages. You look at 45 vintage wines now, and they're, they're really, they're the only ones of those kind of wartime vintages that are still drinking. I had 43 Lafitte a couple of times, but to be honest, it's fallen off now. It's, it's interesting to drink as a curio, but it's not great wine. 
And also every year there are fewer and fewer of those things. So yeah, I think when my grandfather died, I remember we drank back, so we had some, I keep calling it clarets, a British phrase for red Bordeaux. We had some claret from the 20s, I think, when he died. And in fact, we found an old bottle at his funeral. This is going to sound awful, and you're all going to think this is terrible. At his funeral, we, we went to his cellar, and we said, well, let's find the oldest bottle of wine we can, because it's what he would have wanted. So we all smoked some of his cigars. He was a great cigar smoker. And then we found a bottle of port with no label. And I think it was from 1886. It was, I think it was the year of Queen Victoria's Jubilee, which was a thing. So he, it was a Jubilee. It wasn't a particularly good vintage, but people had it. So we all just sat around and drank this small port. It is a real thing. British country houses, I mean, I've got a pet swims in a country house, but finding some really old bottle of wine. And I suppose because of the culture of wine, you often find somebody and their grandfather will have had something and it seems amazing. If anybody wants to, there's that lovely scene in the yeah, book and now TV series and film, uh, the Brideshead Revisited, and there's the, the lovely scene when Sebastian and Charles drink the old pre-war, as in first war, vintages in the, in the house. And there's you know, a sort of British tradition. I mean, the oldest wine we had was actually on the show. Series one, episode one, I get to drink. 1790, uh, 1798 Van de Constance. That was the, I think that was the oldest wine we'd ever had on the shows. It was the oldest wine I've ever had. So that's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's a perfect transition back. Do you want to explain a little bit about what, what the wine shook was from, I guess I, I will have given an overview, but that, and then your role in it. Cause I think it was interesting. Your, your parts also, your part educator doing like in the, the wine showcase. I also want to know who came up with the term showcase and showcase at the same time. I love that. And your travels. I want to talk about those as well. well I, take, I take no real credit for making the wine show because actually it was entirely down to this amazing producer, Melanie Jappy. And Melanie had, has, has had a phenomenal career making food TV. And she was approached by the, the two executive producers who said, we have this idea for a wine TV show. And actually, quite rightly, she said, that's a terrible idea. Because having been a food TV producer and worked with people like Heston Blumenthal and Raymond Blanc and really great chefs, good food looks pretty good. And so you can make it look great. Kind of good wine looks pretty much the same as really epically terrible wine. There isn't a massive difference between the two. So I think her original view was, no, I'm, I'm not really interested in, in doing this. Gradually, I think she came around, she sat on it and she thought this idea through. And what she could then see was the idea of actually, could you go and make something that really appealed to the millions of people around the world who just quite like a glass of wine? Actually, if you think about what they're fascinated in, they love the idea of where it comes from. They do quite like the idea that it is in lovely places. Interestingly, last week, somebody told me the number one reason for going on a wine tourism experience is that the town nearby looks nice. I mean, it's not actually the one. The number two reason is it's in lovely countryside. Actually, mm. drinking the wine is only the third most important reason why somebody does this. And I think Mel had this instinctive sense. If you went to really lovely places and you took people who had a genuine friendship, and that's the actors who are in the show. So Really, the whole thing is built around, I say the three of us, they're actually a whole group of us because we have Mel um, Amelia Singer, who's a great wine expert in Britain, up-and-coming educator, not up-and-coming, very established educator now, but she, she was climbing at the time. Jancis Robinson joined us in Series 2. We'd have interesting guests all the time. But the idea was you'd have at the heart of it these two actors who are genuinely friends. So Matthew Reese from The Americans and brothers and sisters, and then Matthew Good, who's in Downton Abbey and The Crown and so on. And they are genuinely just good mates. And they go on lovely trips around Italy or France. I think we then subsequently had James Purefoy from Rome, HBO's Rome. Mm. And Altered Carbon, he was very good in that. And then series three, Dominic West from The Wire and The Affair and, and now uh, Prince Stroke King Charles in The Crown. So they're all kind of mates and they go around it. And my job was to be the bizarre ringmaster who said, I need you to go here and send them off. But also then I would go away to somewhere weird. 
not weird. I'd go to the United States or I'd go to Chile or China or Thailand and go, they make wine in Thailand? Yes, actually, I'll go and visit. So I, I think I probably became the world best traveled wine tourist by the end of it. I think we'd been to 20 odd countries and I say the end of it, we, we could come back. We've, we've made three seasons. We made a little extra bit and there's certainly no reason why we couldn't, but COVID, we lost our stride a little bit and COVID, it, it took those things out. See, one of those things I often say to people is we have this slightly weird rule, but when we made it, I remember we said to each other, we hope that wine people don't like this. Somebody said, that's really weird. It's a wine TV program. And the theory was that actually, if you made a program that really, really appealed to wine people, maybe a million people would watch it. But then if it didn't appeal to them, but it appealed to everybody else who drinks wine, a hundred million people would watch it. Well, we now know, I don't know exactly, but around a hundred million people of audience for the wine show. So it's 110 countries. And there were people that when the first reviews came out, I remember Jancis Robinson in the UK, she really liked it. And as Oz Clark, one of our great critics, he was a fan. And all these people were going, no, we really like this. And I was, oh, no, this is terrible. And then um, there was one critic, I won't name him because he's quite a good friend. But he was like, no, this is terrible. He was very nice about me. He said, I like Joe and Amelia. They're great. But I think this is a terrible program. And I was so delighted because actually, if he'd really loved it, the hundred million wouldn't have done, and, and that was who he wanted to go after. I think I think that makes a lot of sense. There's so many wine shows, or not wine shows, like wine, like the movie Psalm, for example. I really like it. I try to tell other people nobody wants to watch it because it's literally about sommeliers just like tasting wine and saying tasting notes. And the other, so I tried to show my fiance. She would she got like partway through that movie and turned it off. We've watched every season of the wine show multiple times. So th- that goes to your point that we can both enter- enjoy it. Two quite early people who I remember thinking we do have a hit on our hands. We'd, we'd made, I don't remember where the film was. I think we'd been to Chile. So it was very, very early on. We, we've, Chile was the, one of the first places we went to. And the, the direct, that one was a, a lovely guy called Carl Prekazer. Carl, if anybody's ever seen it, made a very famous, you're going to think this sounds mad. He made a British surf movie, a cult <laughs> British surf movie called Blue Juice with Ewan McGregor. And Catherine Zeta-Jones in it. I mean, yeah, so it's a great film. And he not only directed it, he wrote it as a student. So it was his breakthrough movie. And when he came back, he had all the footage. And he just said, I was quite interested just to see if I could cut together like the film, just to see how it would work. So just on his own thing, just cut together a really early kind of rough cut of what he thought the, the film would look like. And his wife came in and watched it. And she said, yeah, I love that. I really like it. And he said, what struck him is that his wife is teetotal, doesn't drink at all. And he said, if the very first person, she was essentially the first person ever to see an episode of The Wine Show, <laughs> if a teetotaler quite likes it, was onto something. There's a, I, I probably shouldn't say exactly where, but there is, there is an Arab prince who I've become quite friendly with. And he adores this. And he genuinely doesn't drink a drop. But he says, he goes to nice places. We have a real rule, and this is great for wine. I'm going to give away one of our secrets. It's very useful. One of the rules when we used to write or chart out episodes, you, you couldn't go, oh, this is a nice producer. I'd really love to visit them. And you couldn't even say, I really like these wines or these white people need to know more about them. You had to pitch it in this really specific way. <clears throat> so this, you're only allowed three sentences. And if you're ever thinking of doing wine content, anyone listening here is doing wine content, this is a really good model. Sentence one has to have a question in it. Sentence two has to have two numbers. Sentence three has to have a powerful visual image. So actually, I was with some people last week and we drove past one of those bulls in, on the side of the motorway in Spain. Hmm. And I said to somebody, have you ever wondered why there are so many big bulls? billboards on the side of the motorway in Spain. And they said, yes, actually. Now I have an arc. I've got a question I have to answer. Good stories have an arc. Well, actually, there are 92 of them, and they are between 7 and 14 metres tall. And they're ads for this brand of wine called Dos Bohone Veterano. And they're now a Spanish national monument. You can't knock them down. And I said, in the final scene of Bigas Lunas's film, Hamon, Hamon, the protagonist and the villain fight to the death, naked, I have to say, and they're jolly handsome men, battering each other with hand bones. 
And just when you think that the villain is going to win, lightning strikes the bull and the testicles fall off and land on the villain's head and kill him. And I remember pitching this to the wine show. <laughs> the producers, this is one of those three things. It's a question. I've got two numbers. It's a very powerful, very powerful visual image at the end. That would be how we would pitch every story. And I could probably now go back and look at each of the little films we made and say, yeah, I could tell you what the question is. And there's the two numbers. So that people have got a sense of scale of this thing. And then actually, that was the amazing image that comes out at the end of it. No, I, I really like that. I didn't really, when you put that, that sounds difficult to do when you first laid it out, but then the way you described it, I think it makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Before I let Brady hop in and ask a question though, I do want to ask about the specific wine showcase. Did somebody call it a wine showcase or was it the wine showcase? Cause that's something I've always wondered about. <laughs> I remember these discussions. We were all in that <laughs> villa in the first episode, first season in, in, uh, in, um, when we were in Italy, and there were lengthy discussions about it. And actually, Melanie and I are both terrible kind of English pedants. And so we would get cross. I remember there was a lengthy dispute about whether they were attorney generals or attorneys general. We insisted it was attorneys general. And we had various of those sort. We had a great thing because you do a bit where you're talking to the camera. It's known as a piece to camera. And we'd say, well, you always say pieces to camera. Nobody ever goes piece to cameras. And so we would have these long debates. And one of the things that came out of it was we knew we wanted to have the wine show case. And that was that thing that because we would have 12 episodes, 12 whips, we would go and have 12 wines. That felt quite nice and rounded and people understand the idea of a nine liter, 12 bottle case. But of course, at the end of it, this thing emerged where we knew we were showcasing Italy through this array of different wines that we went and put in. And it was that idea that this is a, a showcase of the country. So we left it hanging a little bit as to which one it was. But I think it did originally start with the wine show case, and it emerged later into this is Italy in a box. <laughs> nice. I'm glad to finally get to the bottom of that. Yeah, Joe, what are some of the, you mentioned Thailand and some of these kind of obscure places. In your in your travels and the time that you spent doing the show, what sort of were the were there any commonalities that stood out between sort of these obscure regions in terms of what you discovered when you went to those places? Yeah, there were. When you got to this, I mean, there were some regions where you go to California and you know what to expect. You go to Burgundy, I know what to what to expect. One of the commonalities that came out of visiting, in some cases, the grandest and, and best known regions is actually how incredibly rural they are. And we forget that wine is this very agricultural product. This is made essentially by farmers who their life and the, the rhythms of their lives is farming. And although they're terribly storied and, and often very grand, luxurious names that we think of as being like Chanel. And I've just finished a really interesting book, actually, about luxury. And one of those things that you can see in the sort of way that ev the evolution of luxury is that we've automated it. And we can churn out tens of thousands of Chanel handbags and endless amounts of Louis Vuitton luggage. And there are very few people, Hermes is probably one of them, there aren't that many, though, who really, really maintain this original kind of craftsman, craftsperson ethos. In wine, you can't get away from that. I know that there are very big producers, but certainly when it comes to the sort of wine producers we know and love, they are by and large farmers and they live in pretty small towns. And then when you go to somewhere like Bosnia, actually in the, you're in towns where mm, it's small rural villages and they face exactly the same problems and the same things that come around. There was odd, there were some really odd kind of quirky parts. One of the things that was really quirky was, remember in Thailand, we were discussing the great varieties that they had and we never really got into that. We always had to think, don't really go into the minutiae of winemaking, essentially, unless you can taste it in the glass or it really exposes some curiosity. And one of the things they came out with, one was it's so wet in the atmosphere that the branches start growing roots and you get these air roots, they're called, because the plant wow. doesn't know it's not underground because the air is so moist. Hmm. The other was that they grow a lot of a great variety called Rondo. 
And Ronco is really common in Sweden, where I am right now, and England and parts of Germany. I was like, that could not be more different from Thailand. And the guy went, they're all rainy places. And it's mm. not the heat or the sun, it's so much that these are all places where it's very rainy. And then you realize there's this weird commonality with vineyards in southern Sweden near Malmö and you know, Helsingborg, and some guy going wine in the tropics in, in Thailand. That was a sort of bizarre one. So often people say, what was your favorite place? They all have their own charms. The one that reduced me to tears probably was Georgia, and I just felt like I'd gone home, and it was a magical, wonderful place. Um, if I was to go and make filming somewhere else, we never went to New Zealand, but actually I'd go to Armenia first. You know, there's something about going to those really original sites of where wine comes from that is very, very special. It's very moving when you get there. And it re- it's in there. It's in people's soul. Wine's so deep within them. It's extraordinary. As they say, it's like run, it runs through, through them like a stick of rock. <laughs> That's, I like wow. that. When you were in China and you were having to pair wines with some Chinese food, have you had more practice with that since then? Or did you find that, I know you've said it on the show, it was challenging, but I, I'm, my fiance is Taiwanese and she's gotten re- very much into wine since we've been dating, but it's always interesting trying to pair those foods and, and her parents still won't really drink wine in general, much less with food. So I, I thought that was a fascinating episode as well, or that piece. That was, it was so interesting. And it was one of those rooms where for me, my wife is Swedish, she's not, she's not from Taiwan, not from China. I didn't know enough about the culture. And one of those things I was really interested to do was to not turn up and do the, the very quick kind of shorthand and all the glib remarks and so on. Because I just had this sense that there was something really interesting. The contrast to going to Georgia, where it's absolutely embedded in people's souls and they've been doing it for a very long time. I know in China, people have made wine and they certainly made rice wine for a very long time. If, well, actually, to a degree, great wine as well. But what was so fascinating was the way that this culture had emerged of people who, I tell you now, I have never met people who are such ardent and determined wine aficionados, people who, it sounds like a cliche, but people who took to wine appreciation like their parents had made them play piano. It was that sense that there was just this sense, I want to know everything about this. And there were people who were just amazingly well-informed. What was striking, and the two things I really came away with, one was that we cannot assume that all cultures all the way around the world all approach something with the same sensibility. The sense of tannin texture was so much more explicit and important for people. And now I'm, it's not so much that I was amazed, more that I'm ashamed of how little I spend talking about and thinking about texture and the, the lack of nuance that I had in the way that texture works. And of course, obviously tea culture allows this, and I drink a lot of tea, but I just drink one sort of tea and it comes out of a bag and I have it with milk. So you don't really notice it. The nuance there was extraordinary. Um, and then, of course, the other thing was, it was a different view. Yang Lu, an amazing sommelier, he was really good at guiding me through. It was that sense that you, you're quite individualistic in the West. You think about my experience, with what combination of food and wine will work closest for me. And of course, he's in a communitarian culture where the most important thing is, how do I make the people at this table particularly the most important person, again, hierarchical and communitarian, how do I make them feel most comfortable about the food and wine pairing that we have? Which, of course, is at the heart of being a great sommelier. And actually, if the combination, high tannin red and incredibly fiery chili, actually makes the taste for some people slightly raw and aggressive and to a degree unpleasant, kind of don't care. She over there is the most important guest, and I want her to go and have the best, most important, most brilliant experience. That was one of those great revelations. It was about a worldview as much as a, a gastronomic view, I think. Yeah, we, we, talk, we talk a lot on the pod, folks, about how obviously the, the culture of wine, the, the people in place and all of that have much more to do with the experience that someone has with that wine than just what's on the palate. I think that 
there's maybe ebbs and flows in wine culture, especially among critics and sommeliers and such that either get that right or get that wrong. <laughs> so it's really cool in your, in your media and the approach that you take that you make sure to maintain that thread. Yeah. And honestly, there's a, um, obviously this is not my day job. I go away and do lots of other bits and pieces. One of the big pieces of work that I lived in California for a while after series three and worked for a, for a wine tech startup. And one of the things that we were able to do, and it slightly came out of my experience because obviously you listen to people all the time. And I was social listening, listening to what viewers were saying. I just had this sort of sense that actually the flavor of wine often wasn't that important to people. I know it is. I have this beef about palate matching. I don't buy the idea of palate mm -hmm. matching, largely because I'm Billy. My wife is Taiwanese. We've got very different kind of, my partner's Taiwanese. We've got these very different palates. Actually, what matters to us is that it's something we can both enjoy. So the fact that it matches one person's palate is redundant. I want to go and share these things. And obviously my palate when I am sitting watching the TV on a Wednesday night with my wife, in a sense, what my palate wants then is very different to my palate at a wedding, if I'm wanting to toast the champagne, or if I'm out for dinner and I really want to impress someone. And one of the things we went and did, we, we would test. The great thing about being in digital is you can test all kinds of stuff. I'm amazed more people don't test stuff. Particularly in wine, people just seem to have a thesis about the way people enjoy wine. And they go, well, my thesis is almost certainly right. So I'll just run with that for a bit. I worked on the basis that I was almost certainly wrong because I probably belong to a slightly weird subgroup of about 4 to 5% of the population who are really into wine to some degree. So what we did is we tested tasting notes that were built, number one, around textural words, so rich, full-bodied, refined, elegant. Actually, a lot of the words you're not really meant to use. I, mean, I know elegant is by and large banned in the Wine and Spirits Education Trust. The second sample we used tested food, well, flavor words, strawberries and vanilla and oak and all those kind of things. And then the third was based around use cases. And we had quite a lot of fun with those because you'd say it's great with barbecue or it's nice with a rack of lamb. But actually, you can play more with it. We would say it's a great insider's choice or like a trade secret or made by a female winemaker, which in a sense speaks to a use case of I'm the kind of person who likes to support a female winemaker. Great. I tell you one term that works really well, veteran owned in the US. It's a really interesting term and people love the idea. Oh, I'm buying from a veteran. That's great. And the results were really clear by some margin. It was like three, three or four times the most powerful terms are texture words because largely they describe people. Rich, full bodies, elegant, live, fresh. They're all words you could apply to a person. Number two is the use case. It's kind of family supper. I got told off because I used the word midweek supper and some, everybody in the States said, what the hell's a midweek supper? And I had to say, should we, put, should we try Taco Tuesdays? They said, yeah, let's try that because that'll probably work best. Um, it's essentially the English for Taco Tuesdays. And way down at the bottom was flavor words. And what that came slightly out of doing the wine show and some other bits of research, which was that I think the way people engage with wine is much more human and it's much more emotive than wine people sometimes give it credit for. Uh, and we did try to bring that out in the show. I, I think that's probably a good transition over towards what you do now. But before we completely pivot, I want to know, I want you to explain to the audience your, your coffee test for people's palates and then and maybe discuss that a little bit because I'm not 100% sure I agree with it, but I'd, I'd like you to explain it and then we can discuss. I can tell you the joy of the coffee test is that not absolutely everybody agrees with it, which is great. And actually, we did it in the show, even though I had that. So anyway, what was the coffee test? So the idea is that you'd get a group of people together and you would say, how does somebody take their coffee? And I've got my sort of fingers up here. You would largely have your, your fingers, my, my one finger. If you are espresso, no sugar, you are about 25% of the population who has relatively few taste buds. Although interestingly, this group often includes people who are really, really into wine. And the idea is that you have a quite robust palate that can take lots of tannin and high acidity and kind of big flavors. About half the population fit in the middle because they drink things like flat whites and cappuccinos and coffee with milk or black coffee with sugar. And that accounts for the popularity of those, I was going to say basic bitch, middle of the road. 
varieties like <laughs> Merlot and Trigri Pinot Noir and Sauvignon Blanc and lightly oaked Chardonnay. And that's why they're popular because half the population quite likes them. The third group are people who drink things like lattes or don't drink coffee at all, find it's too bitter, insist on drinking a cup of slightly milky tea. And this is this group that are known as kind of hypersensitive tasters. They have lots of taste buds. And it's not that the taste buds do anything different. It's just with having so many of them, it's like somebody's cranked up the volume so that Barolo just tastes too loud. It's like listening to Ozzy Osbourne in his prime Crashing it about Black Sabbath when actually it's deafening for you. There is this sort of weird anomaly. And in the show, we had brilliant, amazing comedian, Jeannie Ashery, and she just really hated coffee. And she just wanted to drink Sprite and chocolate all the time. And she fitted into this idea of the hypersensitive sweet, which is this idea that they're very, very sensitive, but actually just really adore sweet things. Now, the idea is you go and do the coffee test and then I can say, well, depending how you taste your coffee, well, I think you're going to like such and such. At which point I suspect you're going to say, well, Billy, how, what's your take on it? And then I'll tell you a really interesting piece of research that came out of it. Well, I think part of it's that I, I like espresso and black coffee, but that originated from me just trying to avoid calories in my, my daily coffee. So it was just like a, a flavor thing. So now I have to go back and try all of those other styles just to see. So that was my thing is I can taste nuance. I, I'm a I'm a good taster. But then now that you've explained it, I'm like, maybe, maybe you're right. Because I do high acid in espressos and in black coffee in general. So I don't know, maybe I'm coming around. There's an interesting kind of nuance to, to, to the whole thing. One of the ones, actually, one of the really killer tests, if somebody's not quite sure where they are, you simply ask them if they can taste the difference between Diet Coke and Coke. Now, I am a tolerant taster. I've got relatively few taste buds. I could not ever tell you the difference between Diet Coke and Coke. They just taste exactly the same to me. More sensitive tasters say, oh my goodness, yes, Diet Coke's all metallic and it's got this kind of weird, jarring character to it. That kind of tells you that you have a sensitive palate. There are two interesting takeaways. One is that people just learn. You get people who have very sensitive palates and they just quite, they kind of learn to go and enjoy high tannin, high acid wines. The other was an amazing piece of research. When we, it's a guy called Tim Haney, actually, the American master of wine who came up with this idea. So I don't take credit for it. It's Tim Haney's idea. We did a, a very early iPhone app and the very first iteration of the iPhone in London. And we used this methodology and it was just guide people to choices that they might quite like. One of the quirks of it was in those days, you could do really good geolocation because nobody knew that we were all scanning you on your phones. And we found that there was a group of regular users of the app who were mostly middle-aged business, business men, actually, they were mostly men, who worked in the city of London and they lived in southwest London. And it's a very sort of common thing. It's quite wealthy, affluent place to live in southwest, and then they would all go into the city to work. And their pallets changed at the station. They would go and get to Victoria Station or somewhere where they were off to Waterloo, where they would go, to go home. And their pallets appeared to change literally there. And what we found was that when they were at home, they were drinking Australian Shiraz and Merlot and things. When they were at work, of course, they were drinking Claret, the old stringy Bordeaux's and Barolo's and so on. But of course, when you think about it, Australian Shiraz is the kind of thing you drink at home. It's not particularly status-laden wine. If I'm working in the city and I've just done a deal and we've got some guy to invest £10 million in whatever they've got going and a property deal, I'm not going to say, well, let's go and have a bottle of Australian Shiraz. You're going to say, let's go and drink some decent claret. Let's drink some smart burgundy. And so you then lean into those bits. So there is this massive cultural overlay that sits above the whole thing, which I think is actually becoming more and more prevalent now. Nobody really drinks natural wine for the taste. There are certainly some natural wines. Nobody drinks for the taste. <laughs> People drink it yeah. because I belong to the natural wine tribe. I'm a natural wine kind of person. That's why I drink natural wine. And so telling somebody, well, you've got a palate that really goes to natural wine. Billy's lo Brady's loving this, aren't you? Yeah. But you know what I mean, Brady? I do, I do know what you mean, but you might make Billy leave the, leave the group chat here. Have I called yeah. huge offense? Yeah, Billy's sold no, his wine cellar because he only drinks wines that he can consume the first five days. 
Yeah, no, I, I would beg to differ. Some of those, there are some natural wines that are good. There are five bars within walking distance that only serve that here. So I think somebody's enjoying it. But yeah, no, <laughs> I'll let Brady have his moment here of gloating. <laughs> talked to somebody before and I said, I think it's right that Chateau Latour is a natural wine. It's, it's a bit like that great statistic that London is, according to the UN, London is technically a forest. And oh, I, yeah, think yeah. Natural, I think Latour is technically a natural wine. And yet, it's not a natural, natural wine. I mean, it's, it just isn't. It's not one of those things that falls into that kind of class. And th- th- there's a lot of discussion in the UK at the moment about a, a new group. They're called Bo Peas, and it's short for Bohemian Peasants. And the thing about Bo Peas is they all keep bees in their garden, and they have really they wear smocks, and it's all about rewilding their property and all this kind of. They all happen to be the daughters of earls and sons of dukes, like Kate Middleton, the Princess of Wales, her brother is kind of a Bo Peep. Well, he's also a fabulously wealthy guy. And being into natural wine is actually a better way now of showing your status and your class than just going and buying crystal. Anyone can drink crystal. It's seen as a bit cheesy now. It's basic bitch fashion. Actually, is a more nuanced take on wine is to go and drink natural. You're absolutely right. I think there's some natural wines that taste fabulous. I've got some friends who make just gloriously brilliant natural wines. And there are many that I go and drink. I'm aware that some people are drinking them not because they taste great. It's because that's the vibe that they want to go and give off. And equally, they sometimes drink some stuff where you go, you do realize this just tastes of horse urine. They, it's possible to get past that because of the, the moniker that it has on it, because it's, it's natural. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, technically DRC, I guess, is a natural wine too. No, we have have these bars that you do see the crowds there just so they can say they're at a natural wine bar. I think that's for (laughs) sure. And you see more of these places trying to integrate more of these traditional wines that are just made in a low intervention manner and introduce people that way. But if they, if you were to tell them they were just going to a conventional wine bar, I guarantee you half the people around here wouldn't, wouldn't go. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I have you... to tell you, there's a brilliant story. If, if anybody gets the chance, you have to go and look this guy up. And actually, there's a couple of his books you can find on like the Google library stuff, so you can flip through them for free. It's a guy called P. Morton Shand. Now, nobody remembers P. Morton Shand anymore. However, his granddaughter is the Queen of England. Camilla, Charles's wife, the Queen of, Queen of, Queen of England, Queen of the United Kingdom, and all its realms and commonwealth, her grandfather, her father was a wine merchant. Her grandfather was a wine writer, this guy, P. Morton Chant, who was appalling. He was quite the ladies' man. And in fact, in one of his divorce hearings, the judge said he rather hoped that the negative press would calm his ardor, which is such a great line. But he wrote these various books. That the amazing thing about that worldview when he wrote in the 30s, his first was book was a book called A Book of French Wines. And his second book was called A Book of Wines Other Than French which captures the entire world of wine in the 1930s. And then he wrote a third book called, called Bacchus such and such. If you look up P. Morton Chan, it's the Bacchus book. And he hangs on in there about natural wine. He keeps going on and on about how wines have to be natural. And he talks about other wines prostituting themselves. Such a great turn of phrase. What he was referring to was sparkling wine and fortified. And so actually in the 30s, natural wine just meant something you haven't done much too. I think he would have probably considered 19 Crimes to be not natural wine. I think anybody using Mega Purple or Bourbon Barrels would be considered to be prostituting it. I think many people today would. But his view that the wine was only ever still straightforward fermented, broadly untouched kind of products. And we are returning to that a little bit. Pet Nat, in a way, is a return to the idea that it's too confected, it's too contrived to make a champagne method sparkling wine. Let's go back to being bohemian peasants and thinking that Rousseau was right. Yeah, I was g- going to mention that there's definitely a sort of a trend where, you know, if you decide before you try something that you're supposed to like it or you really want to like it, and then you go and try it, if you don't like it, you just assume you don't understand it versus this is bad. I, I think Completely. it's Can we get maybe something that undergirds like a lot of what we're talking about. 
yeah, can we get rid of that sort of sense of, well, you just don't understand this? To be honest, if you yeah. don't like it, you don't like it. I do love that sort of split. And when I, I did the MW, the Master of Wine, but I never finished it. I got divorced, actually. It's very common, but I think it's something like a third of everybody who starts the MW gets divorced. I certainly did. It was actually cited in the paperwork. But one of the things we did then was this sort of idea of the blick, that you can tell whether or not a wine is good, bad, or indifferent irrespective of whether you like it, because it's balanced, has great length, the characteristics in it, the flavors are very intense, and it's complex, B-L-I-C. If you give one, two, or three stars, ticks, whatever, if you like, to each one of those, you can pretty much take everything from fault-free house wine at four ticks to first grow Bordeaux, Grand Cru Burgundy, of the finest vintages, which will have 12. And now you might think, can you score the entire world of wine within a range of eight? I'm going to tell you, actually, in the Master of Wine, you pretty much can. If you get something that's scored four across, three ticks, three stars across all those three, it will be amazing. It will be one of the greatest wines you've ever had. Certainly once you get ideas, calibration. So a lot of wines you try are eight, nine, maybe even ten ticks on the Blick scale. But... I've used the example once or twice in the past. I quite like Bananarama. Bananarama was this terrible 80s pop. Well, not terrible. I think it was amazing, actually, because I love them. But it was a sort of girl band in the 1980s. And they go and listen to Robert De Niro's Waiting by Bananarama, one of the all-time great pop songs. I just love it. And But I do recognise it's not very good music. I mean, it's shocking. It's teenage pop. I never listen to Wagner because it takes a week to listen to the whole thing and you have to go to Germany to go and listen to it properly and sit in some mad hall. But I do recognise it's one of the greatest, it's one of the greatest component composers of all time. On the Blick, I can recognise, or as an equivalent, that Wagner would score very high and Banana Rama would sit very low. I think we have to, once it, you recognise that, I don't actually have to get it. I'm sure it's very good. It's just not my kind of thing. Actually, over here, I quite like Barefoot Merlot. If you like Barefoot Merlot, that's fine. But, you know, you can also accept that it's fault-free, easy, sugar, bubblegum pop, really, in the world of, of, world of wines. I hope that people aren't furious at me saying that. Yeah, it's a, de- definitely a difficult tension, but it's kind of like, you know, any given moment, we all probably like the taste of ice cream, but you don't want to have it every meal all the time. And ice cream definitely tastes better than a carrot, probably, any given moment. But yeah, you make you make decisions about what what you yeah what you're looking for. Pivoting now into kind of what you are currently doing for wineries and, and consulting on, I guess can you can you talk about what you you've you guess started you've launched after the the wine show? I know it's like a whole it's brand building, it's consulting, it's it's like a whole whole network of of things. Yeah, I, I think the thing that it really homes in on is that, and I'm not saying this is everybody, but one of those consistent problems is that the, the wine business is hugely fragmented. And I'm very wary of suggesting that people don't know what they're doing. Because actually, I think people do know what they're doing. The big problem is that nobody has a water cooler or a coffee machine where they can go and pick up those kind of deep smarts about the wine world and about what they're going and doing. Or when there's exchanging ideas, and you have to go to a wine conference and you don't really get stuff there. And when we look at what's the difference between treasury wine estates and the sort of work they do, and really great family estates is that Treasury Wine Estates has a whole team of people who, by working together, come up with really amazing marketing ideas and they execute them very well. And small teams, it's often one person. It's like the son or the daughter of the winemaker and they've gone away. They might have even gone away to college and you like done a course. What they don't have is that sense of being able to share and evolve and kind of evolve things. So I came up with this idea, well, well look, why not go and have somebody who it's like your CMO, but for a day a month, two days a month, or a week once just to come in and do a piece of work. And so there's a whole range of clients, mostly small. Actually, I have had one of the biggest wine producers in the world as a client. So sometimes somebody comes up. But that was interesting because it came up with an, a problem. I have to be very careful what I say, but it was, it was a problem in an area in their portfolio where they weren't experts. And they said, we actually don't know that much here. We have all these marketing people, but we've been working on a totally different end of the market. We need someone to come in. 
the, the often the biggest challenge is saying to people, you need to position yourself somewhere. You need to mean something for people. Tasting good is massively important. I never underestimate and, and downplay the importance of tasting good, but it's not enough. And actually, by the time somebody knows that you've tasted good, they already have to think that you're for them at the moment. I'm working with this amazing Bordeaux producer. I keep banging on about Bordeaux. It's just because I really like it. I think it's facing all sorts of problems. But it's a really lovely guy. And he, I won't give a boost because I'll see it elsewhere. But one of his challenges, he is within sight of Chateau Petrus. He has a winemaker from Cheval Blanc. And his wine is like $30. And yet it has this extraordinary thing. Now, this is luxury for everyone. Essentially, somebody's going to buy it, not because of what it tastes like. Now, I could tell you what it tastes like, and it tastes fantastic. It tastes like really great Merlot. It's got this really lovely character. The 15 vintage is bloody brilliant. The 11 is absolutely superb. So it's this really nice kind of character to the wine. That's not going to win anyone over. When you say to somebody, this is a bit of luxury for everyone, and it's the perfect thing if you're wanting Thanksgiving or you're wanting to go and serve at Christmas or you want to lay down some really great wine that will just mature brilliantly over the next few years. You'll get into collecting some smart Bordeaux. Actually, that's what it is. So how do you then go and articulate that? And then it's the case of let's go and find ways of building that up. Sometimes I look in awe at the work other people do. And part of my job is to look at what really cool stuff people are doing. If Anyone's listening to this, go and see the single coolest wine brand that's been launched in the last 10 years. I think it's absolutely phenomenal. It's called the Rochambeau Club. Rochambeau as in the sort of French way you'd spell it, R-O-C-H-A-M-B-E-A-U. And I don't want to give too much away. Just go into it. Set your mind free and go in and you will be confused. And you'll be wondering why on earth, one thing you'll be wondering is, is there seriously an international pedalo operators association? And you enter this kind of world. Now, the amazing thing about the Rochambeau Club is that it takes you into a world before you even know that they sell any wine. It draws you into a complete imaginary universe. And the whole thing is totally imaginary. But it's really clever. And it's not, it's actually very tiny. It's a tiny little business. It's a small bunch of guys. The winemaker is a top flight winemaker. But go away and do that. I'm going to leave that for people to enjoy. The Rochambeau Club. And it's, it's slightly, it also, one of the nice things is it's become a thing to know about. So one of the best bits is not many people know about it. And they like that because then they tell other friends, oh, like I have done that, told you about it. So this is broadly what I do. And I work with a whole array of different people. A lot of it is a combination of, I was a wine merchant for three of the biggest, most prestigious. So I worked for a company called Matthew Clark, a massive wine distributor in the UK. Uh, then for Bendham, which was a very innovative wine distributor and ran their London sales team where I met my wife. And we were much more funky and we were doing really interesting, quirky things. And then I worked for Berry Brothers and Rudd, which is the probably the world's oldest wine merchant, set up in 1698. Upstairs at Berry Brothers is famous, famously was the embassy of the state of Texas when it was, when it was a, an independent state. And when, this is a great little quirky fact, when Texas was subsumed into the Union, there was no longer a legal entity for Berry Brothers to invoice for their last year of being in the building and because they sublet the office. And so it was this outstanding debt of about 200 pounds that lasted for several hundred years. And I think years later, the governor of Texas came and they had had, had dinner in the director's dining room. And I think cash was handed out to settle this long-term debt. So I worked, worked for really great wine businesses and worked in a, a quite an innovative series of tech companies. I worked and consult for various tech businesses. And then having been this communicator and the, the sort of three of them come together in um, that sort of marketing, strategic marketing nexus. So get in touch. I'm delighted to help. Awesome. I'm sure a lot of people will. We are bumping up against time here. I don't want to take you too long, but I have, I recently subscribed to your, the free version of your Substack, 
And I wanted to ask you about this one. It's probably the least substantive piece in this latest episode or edition. But is hashtag STEM watch just watching people holding wine glasses wrong? Because I also have beef with Jer- or what's his name, Jeremy Hunt for the the taxes on scotch as well as wine for investment purposes. So yeah, I, this one hit home today. It was nice. <laughs> I What I really want to do is to get a baseball cap like Brady's and I want to brand it with hashtag stemwatch across the front of it. This is going to be my line of merch. Actually, you both got baseball caps on. I should wear my should wear a baseball cap. It really came out of this idea as we were making the show. I just made a joke out of the fact that wine merchants always hold their glass by the stem and not by the bowl. And I have to tell you, there's an element of it is a bit meta. I genuinely don't care how people hold their glass. Hold your <laughs> glass anywhere you want. But it came this quite funny thing where I was like, well, I'm going to be this terribly superior wine merchant who always holds their glass very low by, by the stem. The number of people who don't get that it's a meta joke is astonishing because every time I do it, people come back and they say, oh, how disgraceful it was. So yes, in today's Substack, I had I managed to find four photographs of the Chancellor of the Exchequer who has put through the biggest duty increase on wine, the biggest rate increase in 50 years. And yet there he is. In white tie as well, white tie and tails, twice holding a wine glass by the bowl. What kind of an oaf does that? I do really love English class. Um, and so I'm fascinated by English class and the whole thing being snobby, I think is terribly funny. I, it is a completely confected snobbish joke and you feel free. However, be warned, I will come to your dinner party and I'll be there and I'll be like, oh my God. Brady Stemwatch, hashtag Stemwatch. I'll do the hashtag with your fingers properly. So yes, always hold the glass by the stem, not the bowl, you animals. The, yeah, the, the evolution, even past holding it by the stem, is holding it by the, the foot or the base of it. Oh, it is. And I tell you who does that a lot, champagne shippers, yes, that's right. champagne reps, often very, very low down. Funny enough, tomorrow night, I'm going for supper with York, with, uh, Maximilian Riedel. The, 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 the glass maker sure. and I'm really fascinated I will be just quietly polishing the lens of my camera to go and photograph anybody for stem watch violations with Maximilian yeah, Riedel as, as little as to go and see. just barely hanging on as possible just barely hanging yeah, on is, is the right way kind of a thumbnail right. because yeah, you're holding the base so exactly. tightly onto <laughs> your glass part of this and I think it's one of those areas where is less prevalent in the United States. I've always loved coming and drinking wine in the United States. I worked for the US PGA Tour. There's a slightly weird thing thrown at the end. I did work as the wine expert at the US PGA Tour for, for a while. And I used to go around the tournament players clubs. And often it was always the same way. I would go into these golf clubs and I would always be met with a frosty silence because everybody would think this British guy is going to be a snob. And the way to come over that is I would slightly make fun of UK wine snobbery about the whole sort of thing. And we'd end up having the most amazing time because actually wine's just a lot of fun. It's a great drink, but you can have fun with the snobbery. And I'm not entirely opposed to it. Actually, I quite like that you decant things. I quite like that we have a bit of celebration and so on. And actually, very often we filmed once in, in, in Israel and, and I remember there was a, a rabbi and he said there's a point to this ritual. It's to stop you drinking too much. If you have no guardrails, if you've got nothing around, a di- essentially a quite dangerous product, a risky product like wine, people can go mad. And we do see that sometimes. And so I play into it a little bit. But you know what? Drink what you like, with who you like, hold your glasses how you like, but do let yourself enjoy some of the snobbery. It's nice to dress up sometimes. And it's lovely to decant something into a really lovely decanter. I thought the uh, the PGA thing was just a, a joke for part of that that episode. I thought I was like, that's a random joke. <laughs> no, it's absolutely true. It was like literally oh, wow. it was the world's coolest job. It didn't survive 2008. It has to be said. The financial crash didn't. It was one of those things. It was a really interesting thing because the way it worked was I would, about half the work was going to tournaments. And so I would go to PGA tournaments and essentially go and drink wine with quite wealthy people as part of the sort of overall experience. And then the other half was these tournament players clubs where they would host the tournaments. Often you would have these members who are just really, really into wine. And so we would put on these events all around the place. So I, I got to travel the whole of the United States. So I would go to Boston 
and then I'd be off to Memphis and then it'd be Atlanta and then you scoot left and center. The only thing they didn't have at the time was a club in California, which was mad, you know, I'd so mm. you know, Minneapolis and Paul or somewhere and I'd travel all around. And I, it was extraordinary. I got to meet Tiger when I got to see Tiger get beaten, actually, in the President's Cup when it was in Canada. Wow. I met President Bush Sr. and uh, Mrs. Bush as well at tournament. So you, know, you got to meet incredible people. I say that. I'm the guy who once gatecrashed the White House Correspondents' Dinner and ended up falling asleep in the corner with Larry King because... Oh. Colin Powell's Secret Service team removed me from the room. <laughs> it was bizarre. So I do get myself into slight. It's amazing what you can do with a slightly boarding school English accent. And it maybe not so much now, but certainly under the second President Bush's presidency, it was still possible to gay crash the White House correspondence in it. Look it up because Pamela Anderson was wearing a, a yellow dress, this sort of yellow meringue dress. And I remember I came in through a service entrance and appeared on the red carpet standing behind Pamela Anderson in this bizarre dress. And I just remember all the photographers shouting. They they used some choice, quite violent sexual imagery to tell me to get out of the way. Dragged off from standing behind Pamela Anderson because it's just (laughs) a bull. British goon standing in the background having his photo taken. So it was, uh, it was all. I'll have to have you back on to have to talk about more, more of your adventures. But thank you so much for joining, Joe. It's been great. It's a pleasure. I loved it. All right. And that was our interview with Joe Fatterini. I hope everybody enjoyed both the the wine show stories as well as his anecdotes from his, his many years in the wine industry. I think it was a, a great episode. That is it for us this week. And we will be back with another episode and another interview next week. Cheers. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.